I'm sitting next to him. Mind you, I'm, I'm, we're at his place in New Orleans, and his wife is packing up. They're, they're putting all the tape on the boxes, whatever. And I'm just sitting there watching TV. Of course, this is breaking news all over the place. CP's about to play with Kobe and Powell and the whole thing. So I'm just sitting there kind of watching that, whatever. And he's on the phone. And he hung up the phone. He was like, yo, did you hear that? And I'm like, nah. He's like, bro, they just said I can't get traded. <laughs> I said, man, you lying. He very much was at practice the next day. Um, and then, you know, shortly thereafter, he made his way to the Clippers. So I'm glad he got to go into a situation uh, where, where he can still be competitive. That is Chris Paul's teammate, Jarrett Jack, when he was hanging out with Paul, when Paul got a call saying, you're actually not going to the Lakers. Really good stories on that and this time with the G League, also Luke Wilson. We're going to talk about that Sixers loss. We're going to give Trey Young some love and life advice next. This episode is presented to you by Lululemon. The perfect pants do exist, and you can get them at Lululemon. The men's ABC pants are shockingly comfortable and breathable, and they come in tons of different styles and fabrics, all made to make you look and feel good. Whether you're in the office, at the gym, cheering in the stands, or just relaxing at home, these pants are in a league of their own. Buy a pair today at lululemon.com. This episode is brought to you by Hulu Plus Live TV. Tired of paying for cable TV? Switch to Hulu Plus Live TV today to watch over 95 live channels for sports, news, shows, and more. Plus, get access to Hulu's entire streaming library with access to Disney Plus and ESPN Plus all in one plan. No long-term contract, no hidden fees, and no clunky cable box. Get Hulu Plus Live TV today. Live TV plan required. Restrictions apply. Access content from each service separately. Learn more at Hulu.com. So just so everybody understands my night, I was with a friend and it's a blowout. I come back to the hotel. I'm on the phone with Cowherd. We're chopping it up. I go, hey, dude, I think I got to go. I think I'm about to watch something historic here. And unfortunately for Sixers fans and fortunately for this Atlanta team that's now up 3-2 in this series, we just saw one of the epic meltdowns in recent playoff history. And unfortunately, it's the second time it's happened in this Sixers Atlanta series. So Let's go over just some of the stuff flying around last night because you know me, like personally, I'm not going to, I'm not emotionally like, I'm not going to start screaming and, hey, this team sucks, fire everybody, all that kind of stuff. It's just not who your guy is. But let's run through what happened, meaning at the end of game five, and then what we kind of have now contextually for game four and game five, because this is a joke. I mean, Philly, good luck to you this morning and trying to navigate through this. All right, so Ben Simmons has zero field goal attempts in the last two fourth quarters. All right? Zero. They blew a 26-point lead in game five. It's the third largest blown lead in the playoffs in the last 25 years. Ben Simmons has missed 45 free throws in the playoffs. Other teams have only missed like 20. Ben Simmons is the first player in the regular season or playoffs with 10 plus misses at the free throw line this season. All right. (laughs) Only Joel Embiid and Seth Curry made a field goal in the second half. At one point, the second half scoring split was 36 points for Embiid and Seth Curry, six points for everyone else. For them to be the only duo to make a field goal in the second half, it's the only duo in the last 15 postseasons for this to happen. Dwight Howard has a higher usage rate 
in this series at 18.5 than Ben Simmons at 14.4. Ben Simmons, if we look at the worst single free throw percentage in a playoff, minimum 50 attempts, Ben Wallace in 2006, this number, cover the kid's ears, 27.3% at the free throw line in 06. The second worst, you guessed it, Ben Simmons at just under 33%. Philadelphia was up 25 with 315 left in the third quarter. They gave up 51 points in the remaining 15 plus. Philly is the only team to blow 18-point leads in back-to-back games in the playoffs in the last 25 seasons. And of course, everyone knows my favorite number ever, win probability. The win probability in game four, 95.5%. Win probability in game five, 99.7%. Ben Simmons also came out of this game for about a minute in the fourth quarter because they went to the hacking Ben Simmons approach. And we're going to go through every fourth quarter offensive possession for Philadelphia. And really, I could have done it for defensive possessions because it was just as bad. But I'm going to do it for the offensive side of this because I think that's still the fundamental problem with the Ben Simmons approach to it. Um, Not saying Ben Simmons is terrible, but like whenever, you know, it's just one of those deals where you go, hey, is it okay if I say there's some doubts here? Is it okay to say that when you see it in real time? And the problem for Ben Simmons is that he's talked about as if he's a superstar in this league, and he's not. He's really good at some things. I remember that one, who was it, the the Wizards broadcaster was like, hey, I just think Ben Simmons is really overrated, and everybody crushed him. Ben Simmons called him short, which, you know. But look, we respect and recognize all shapes and sizes on this podcast now. But... I think it's okay to watch these games and watch what happens in the fourth quarter and go, yeah, maybe these are some of the anti-Ben Simmons arguments and maybe they're not terrible. And I appreciate all the stuff that he's doing, but if he's out there trying to stop Trey Young and Trey Young has 39 points, then what's going on? I'm going to go over all those fourth quarter possessions on offense in a very short amount of time. But there's also something else that goes beyond all these historical numbers that we saw from the Sixers. There's a tightness to this team And it's hard to get through it until you have success. And it's funny because it plays in perfectly what the Clippers have done now and what Paul George did in game five to go up 3-2 in Utah. Clippers going small, small, small. When you think they can't go smaller, they go small again. And granted, it's not like it's a completely new rotation of guys. They're just going to go small. They're going to make Gobert have to chase people around. They're going to limit his effectiveness because he's moving around. And then on offense, he can't make anyone pay. And now Paul George... The rediscovery of Paul George storyline is happening. People asked him, hey, is this what playoff P is? Now, if you really watch the game, he had 30 and 13 points and rebounds going into the fourth quarter. And for about seven minutes in the fourth quarter, bobbling the basketball, making some weird passes. Now it's really on you. But they win. He has a couple buckets late. And so all of the kind of stuff that scared you a little bit, because it really happened. There were moments where you're like, oh, I, I don't know if scare is the right word, but like something's off here. They're kind of getting clogged up. It's all on him. Now it's really all on you. The Sixers are like the worst playoff Paul George, but there's five of them. And that's not entirely fair, but I'd ask any Sixers fan that watched this game, watched game four, watched some of those other losses where you're like, do you guys actually not believe in yourselves? Because this is where 
after only six minutes, I've taken too long to getting to Trey Young and giving him all the credit because Trey Young is the toughest player on the court in this series. Trey Young's the toughest player. That guy, and for all my criticisms, which I think were fair at the time, that guy has been told he's too small. He's been told all these, it's kind of like that Isaiah Thomas deal where I didn't always love all the Isaiah Thomas stuff on offense, but it's hard to tell him like, hey, be different, have a different approach when he's like, all you guys have done has been wrong about me as a player out of high school, out of college, Sacramento, Phoenix, and now in Boston. And with Trey Young, it's not as long. It's not as much doubt. I mean, we're talking about a guy that was a top five pick. But with Trey, there's just no doubt with him because everyone else has done the doubting for him. So why would he doubt himself? And I don't know if this will change because here's a Philadelphia team. Look at these leads. Game two, up 21. Game three, up 22. Game four, up 18. Game five, up 26 points. It was 52 Excuse me. No, 62 to 36. Yeah. 62 36 at one point. And I'm like, all right, I'll be able to prep for the next game. Like, I don't have to watch this one. And then, you know, an hour in real time later, I'm telling Cowherd, hey, I got to get off the phone. Like, this is happening. That's what I take from this. Because Atlanta's up 3 2 on a team that I think is better than them. I do. And maybe that's the wake-up call Philadelphia needed. But when you watch a few of those last possessions, and I'm not talking about an offensive concept here. I'm talking about some of those final possessions. We even saw it in game four where Tobias Harris pulls up right side, probably could have taken that shot, throws it down to Embiid, Embiid misses the layup, then it's out of bounds off of Ben Simmons. All right, game over, body language destroyed. There's a couple possessions I'll get to a little bit later in the podcast where you're like, okay, you guys are freaking out a little bit. You're freaking out because all you're doing, you're not thinking about the possession or what you're supposed to be doing. You're thinking, I can't believe we just blew another lead this big. So credit to the Hawks. We'll get into that Sixers fourth quarter coming up. This episode is brought to you by Netflix. A gentleman always opens the door for you, but the gentlemen are just as likely to break it down and stash their drugs inside. The Gentleman, based on Guy Ritchie's award-winning film, is a new Netflix series that follows a whole new cast of criminal lords and ladies slumming it in Britain's criminal underworld. Guns out and pinkies up. Don't miss The Gentleman, now playing only on Netflix. I said I was going to go through every play. Let's not do that to each other because I just don't even think that would be interesting to anybody. Okay, let's focus on three separate parts of the fourth quarter and what the Sixers are trying to do offensively. 87-69, it's Harris and the bench group and the first play on the right side where they're trying to get Harris against Kevin Herter, it completely gets jammed up, doesn't work, and uh, George Hill has a missed floater. And then, by the way, Dwight missed a putback on that miss. They wanted Harris again against Herter. They get the switch this time, but Herter worked really, really hard on this. He fronted, he got physical, he got... Harris in a spot where he was on the left baseline misses a tough fadeaway. Um, they do it again. Harris switch against Herter. And on this play, you actually ended up with Harris on a drive, but all the help came to him and came off that short right corner off of George Hill and Harris kicked it out to him. And it was actually a great look for Hill. He just missed the three. Offensive rebound, Dwight blocked. So none of that worked. Under 10, they bring in Simmons and MD. Now, as soon as Simmons comes in, you have to see how different the defense is. All right, we already know this. This isn't new. But when things start to get tight 
And as I've always looked at some of those fourth quarter offensive efficiency numbers for the Sixers, they've been on the worst side of things here the last four years um, in some of the clutch time stuff. They had like a one year where they were actually pretty decent there. And then if you look at the playoffs, they usually were like in the bottom five teams of fourth quarter per 100. And you could argue, hey, it's short sample every single way. But there's a consistent problem I think we would see with the Sixers team where you're like, I just don't really love the way it looks, which doesn't mean that it's impossible because let's let's not kid ourselves. In game four, when they're up 18, I'm going, hey, Philly might win the title this year. And they could still have this, I think, major problem with the Simmons and B relationship, which I, you know, I don't even know why anybody debates this stuff anymore. And they could still win a title. Like that's actually what I think could happen, especially this year. Doesn't feel so good now, down three, two. So Simmons comes in, his defender's Gallinari. Gallo is below the free throw line. He is more than 15 feet away from where Simmons is at the top of the key. And this whole big chunk here in the middle of the fourth quarter towards the end is Simmons bringing the ball up, kind of faking the offense. Gallinari never comes up. So if it's a handoff to Curry or it's a pass to Curry where then Simmons sets the screen on Trey Young and then Curry's trying to get some kind of momentum and angle, in a normal situation, there's a fourth guy who's who has to make a decision. In this case, the fourth guy is Gallinari, and he's already standing at the free throw line near Embiid, who already has another big on him. So it's almost like these possessions start with Embiid with a double team, and it's also why you can't just say, hey, get Embiid in the post and, and get to work, because <laughs> it, there's just all the bodies are kind of in that area already. And if you just want to post one side, then it's like everybody already knows which side you're setting up. So at least this case, there's there's the the concept of that we may go left or right here. But it usually just ends up in this curry handoff or then Embiid catches it and then he gets some sort of handoff to curry. This Sixers offense in game five was the Curry-Embiid two-man game, which we've seen a lot in the regular season. And Simmons kind of fake sets it up while Simmons' guy stands as far away from Simmons as he possibly can, always involved in the other group. And Curry had a couple good looks here. You know, they, they made some shots. Guys got fouled. But at 625, that was the last time the Sixers were going to make a field goal in this game. The fourth made field goal of the fourth quarter is a long two by Curry. They don't make a field goal for the next 6-25 because it's Curry having to figure out something kind of one-on-one and sometimes even one-on-two. It's Embiid because he can't really set up in the post the way you'd want him to normally earlier in the game. He's now starting over and kind of facing the basket way too far away and having to kind of restart the possession himself and then he's going to drive and sometimes he gets fouled he had a couple missed dunks he missed those two huge free throws late but that's that's really it that's it it was like hey let's get Harris against Herder okay didn't work let's do this Simmons Curry and Bead deal and the other two guys are completely non-existent and if Ben Simmons is in there with Dybul to stop Trey Young defensively and Trey ends up with 39 points you know look they took they took Simmons out at 320, brought him back in at like 220. It was less than a minute because then they were going to start fouling Simmons. And Simmons actually made two free throws, made the first two, missed the second one. And then I think the real disaster here was Trey hits those three free throws on the Thibel foul. Again, I don't love that play. Um, it was probably the biggest offensive possession for the Hawks as they go up 105-104. It's their first lead of the game. 
And so this is where, as I said in the open, it looks really tight. They run a play where Harris ends up in the left baseline. He drives. You saw Gallinari try to flop for the charge. He passes it to Embiid. Could Harris have hit that or taken that shot? Maybe. But Embiid just kind of freezes. I don't know if it's because he thought he could have passed to Ben Simmons, who looked open underneath the rim, but I don't think that's entirely fair because there's some bodies, some arms. And you might also be, if you're Embiid going, do I really want to pass it to Simmons here and have him get fouled? And then as Embiid's kind of resetting and figuring out what to do, because none of this is in the flow. It's just kind of like on the fly, your seven-footer has to figure this out seven feet away from the hoop with the ball in his hands. He passes it to Harris, who then is blocked, and it's a foul on the 76ers. And then they ran this other play when they brought in Shake Milton to run the offense, which speaks to all the confusion and frustration and lack of spacing when Simmons was running that offense for what felt like eight minutes straight, other than the minute he got benched because of the free throws. They ran. They tried to a Curry high screen for Shake Milton. Curry gets to the left break. He's wide open. Shake Milton doesn't even look at him. Doesn't even look at him. So then the Sixers run a three-man weave, basically, with Shake Milton, Tobias Harris, Joel Embiid, which does nothing. And then, you know, it ended up being that Embiid got fouled, and that's when he missed those two free throws. So, look, this isn't news, but I cannot express to you how alarming is the wrong word, but just the clarity when you watch it the next day and you go, this is, this is like the last two plays were terrible. The Ben Simmons thing for eight minutes, isn't that great? And look, they gave up a million points in the fourth quarter too. So next time I could do the defensive possessions, but I'm not going to. So Rudy, I know you want to do a little Doc Rivers here, so let it fly, son. (laughs) I think one one of the first memories of you and I talking, and I think you disagreeing with me, was when I kind of brought up to you whether or not Doc was actually a great coach. Um and you were like, nope, definitely is, definitely is, definitely is. And listen, I think the title in Boston is obviously great. Um, but I, there are just so many blemishes now. And if they go on to lose this series, he's going to have three of the worst playoff losses in the history of the NBA on his resume. And that's not even mentioning like other ones down 3-2. Like, like if we just go through it really quickly, because some of them are absolutely wild. Obviously, if they lose this, this is going to be terrible. You got last year, they blew a 3-1 lead to the, to the Nuggets, which was insane. 2015, they blow the 3-1 lead to the Rockets. Um, Which is actually, I think, worse. Totally different Clippers team. Like, <laughs> d- Yeah, exactly. It probably was worse. I know. Um, but anyway. 20, 2012 Celtics blew a 3-2 lead to the Heat. Now, some of these you could say, all right. like That one I'm not terrible. hearing. It's a, it's amazing they were even up 3-2 on That's that That's fine. Team. It's fine. It's fine. It's still there. 2010 Celtics blew a 3-2 lead to the Lakers. Uh, again, you could, you could say that it's not totally on him, but it's still on his resume. 2009, 3-2 lead to the Magic. What's up? And then this is the one people were throwing at me last night. I don't think this one's necessarily as bad because it was an 8-1 matchup. But when he was the 8 seed, he did blow a 3-1 lead as the Magic head coach to the number one seed Pistons. So, I, and I almost think, Ryan, I don't, I told you, I've been very like honest with you about this. I don't trust Embiid. I don't trust Simmons. It was why I was pretty surprised that you picked them to win the East. Um and I almost feel like Doc is the worst head coach for this group because he has that on his resume. So it's three guys, Embiid, Simmons, and Doc, all guys that I just, I don't know if I trust in these big time series. And I kind of feel like it's rearing its ugly head again. I would disagree with some of the long lead resume stuff with you, but you're right. I mean, if he blows this one, I mean, Philadelphia is the better basketball team. Oh, it's not even close. I mean, I like, well, I like I Atlanta. But it's funny how no one can stop themselves from saying it's not even close. 
Um, it's close, <laughs> but, but it's it's closer than it's not even close. I'm not saying they're even. I think it's clear that Philadelphia is the better basketball team. So I think we're agreeing here. But I just always laugh whenever there's like something that may be close and then it's trumped with. Yeah, it's not even close. But when you when you blow two massive leads in this series should be over when you blow two massive leads like that. That to me is more about you than it is about the other team. And like shout out to the Hawks for coming back. And and, and obviously, you know, they make the Eastern Conference finals. That's amazing. Uh, and uh, Trey is making me eat a lot of my words because I just didn't think it was possible. I didn't think he could do this. Um, but this to me is more about the Sixers than it is the Hawks. Like I just think something something is wrong with like, we, we've talked about blowing the Sixers up for like what feels like a decade now. If this happens, I mean, I don't know what Daryl Morey's going to do, but clearly, clearly, I don't think Philly could let you bring these guys back next year. I just don't think there's no way. Well, there's a way if you don't like the trades, you think all the trades make you worse because they would still sit there and say, like, look at last year. The Sixers were a six seed, you know, and granted, they moved some of the parts around it. But this year, they're the one seed. You know, last year, they couldn't win games on the road. So, you know, I'm not going to hear like, the team is structured better, but Doc is better than Brett Brown. Um, I think Doc's a good coach. And I think the funny thing about, like, is he the wrong guy because he's had some of these breakdowns for a team that can't seem to get through it. And this could all change here. You know what I mean? You still got to be Atlanta and eliminate what we both think is a better team. You know, when the other team's fighting to stay alive and you already have, like, that extra game in your back pocket, like, we see some weird things happen. But when Doc really laid into him after game four and kind of let him have it a little bit before game five in those moments, I'm, I was thinking, hey, that's great they have a guy like Doc because I'm not sure that many coaches can get away with that kind of tough love anymore in the league. I think that coaching job is so tough now in this league where guys just don't want to hear it from anybody. So if you're going to bring it and you're going to be critical and you're going to be critical publicly, and it wasn't like he was completely trashing him publicly, but he said things other guys wouldn't even venture to say. I'm in the, that's just fun how funny sports are because early in game five, when they're way up, I'm like, you know, they're lucky they have a guy like Doc who's like doesn't give a shit and was just say what he's going to say to these guys. And it seems so wrong. And your point seems so much more valid after they blow the lead. And you're like, hey, here's a guy who has a history of blowing these series leads and he's the worst guy for him. So I'm not even telling you you're wrong on that one. I just look, I just think I disagree because I think he's a good coach and he's got some bad stuff on his resume. And this will be. This I don't know if this will be worse than that Clippers-Houston one. Because that Clippers-Houston one, that was a dead was Rockets a- team. I mean, Harden wasn't even in the game, and that's when they started to come back. Because that team, that Houston team was that messed up. So, um, you know, I guess you could point to, oh, well, Embiid was hurt and whatever. I, you know, look, he wasn't hurt in the first half. He wasn't hurt. Like, no one could do anything with him in the first half. I just think that they really struggle to find a way. Like, this game has become, at least for me, you're never going to stop anybody anymore with the way things are called, the shooting, the shot-making ability that players have. But it kind of becomes like, all right, you guys scored a bunch of points. Now what's up that it's tight and that guys are fighting over screens and guys are really locked into what you're doing. And now we're later in the series, so everybody's familiar with each other. And it's it's a lot like the the Brooklyn-Milwaukee game from Game 5. I thought Milwaukee's approach offensively was one of the worst approaches uh, I've ever seen in recent memory because we all knew Harden within minutes was jammed up with a hamstring. He was tentative. He couldn't really move. And the Bucks, I think, were up immediately like 9-2, 10-2, something like that. 
And they had done it all without attacking Harden. So their offense was working great. They had 87 points, I think, through three quarters. So you're watching it going, all right, is it really that big of a deal that they're not attacking Harden? And I think it spoke to a lack of intelligence on their approach. And some of it's obviously Coach Bud. A lot of it's on him. But Drew Holiday, who was a guy we all really like. And you go, can you ever imagine a game where Chris Paul wouldn't be just attacking, attacking James Harden and exposing him? And the Bucs just didn't have any interest in doing it to Harden. And Drew Holiday, at some point, you'd think, like, I swear, if I'm ever sentenced to death by a firing squad, I hope Coach Budenholzer is one of the shooters. Because <laughs> he'll just miss on purpose. and be like, ah, we don't want to do that to Rye. Because that's, like, and, they, and coaches are so stubborn sometimes. They're just like, well, we don't want to change who we are. We do. Actually, you do. And to not, to cut, you know, you're five out with Durant and you don't send a double to him after... Durant has one of the great games in his historic career, which, you know, unfortunately, my negative focus on the Bucks takes away. But like, what am I going to do? Tweet? Wow. You know, the night Durant goes nuts because I was just sitting there in disbelief watching this Bucks team go. So you, this is really what you guys are going to do. Like, this is what you're going to do. And it's made me completely change. And it was after game three. I felt better about them when they were down 2-0 than when they were down 2-1 because I go, I can't believe just the lack of basketball IQ. And it's in those moments, much like we saw at the end of game five, Saruti, where you're like, all right, you guys scored a bunch of points and you got all these really good players. Okay, now here we go. Like six minutes to go, four minutes to go, two minutes to go. What kinds of decisions are you guys going to be making on the offensive side? And your per 100s are awesome. But what are you in these moments? And both Philly and Milwaukee have shown that those are not moments where they thrive. Was it last year that Simmons said that, uh, and this is Bill Simmons, that the Celtics window or their, their best chance to like win a title was last year, right? Yes. I kind of feel like, can you say the same about this year with Milwaukee and Philly, given what the Nets are going through right now? Like the Nets, I, this is this is probably the ripest they are for the picking. Uh, I, and if, if it doesn't happen this year, I mean, they're probably going to be better next year. I mean, two of those guys being hurt, like if you're Philly, this was your this was your chance. Like you're going to play, you could play a beat up, you're either going to play a Bucks team that I don't think anybody has any faith in, um, now at least, and, or you're going to play a beat up Nets team with one and one star who's obviously probably maybe the best player on the planet, but two guys that are banged up and one of them might not even play. I just think you're, they're going to look back at this and go, "This might have been our thing. This might have been our window." They're still too young, and with those, you know, whatever the asset Ben Simmons is, um, you know, like as I said before, they stay up. In game five, you know, win by 15. Today is, is Philly going to win a title? Because Kawhi's gone, which is a weird story in itself where he's gone for this series against Utah. But then you're thinking, all right, well, Utah's good to go. And then Paul George has a terrific game. And they figured out Utah by going small. Now, Gobert, you can put him in the Simmons category of, okay, I know I'm supposed to think you're a superstar, but you're not. You're just not. And, you know, you don't get to have 20 of them, guys. And so you factor that in. And now the Chris Paul COVID thing, this there's never been a more open window for anybody. I mean, there's likely going to be a team that wins this title that all of us are going to have all these takes that look stupid and mean because it's changed every 24 hours. And the reason I didn't pick the Nets partially was for the reasons that you just brought up. Like, oh, wait, Kyrie gets hurt all the time. Durant gets hurt a lot. You know, is it really going to work where you play eight games together in the regular season? You're just going to run through everybody. And there are moments through the playoffs. I'm like, I think they are. And then Kyrie gets hurt again. And so you're like, oh, okay. And then Harden, 
who usually plays all the time, but I don't know if coming into this season completely out of shape helps you. Maybe with him, it doesn't even matter because that's how we felt when he was on a roll and he was almost like an MVP candidate because you're like, this guy doesn't even need to be in shape. But you wonder if that takes a toll on you later on in the season. But credit to him for even going out there when he looks so diminished. But watching a Bucks team not even bother. Like, I just, I kept watching that game thinking, the idea that Chris Paul would let this happen, where you're like, yeah, just stick Harden in the corner. We're not even going to bother with you, man. Like, we know you're hurt. Paul would be like, hey, come on up from the corner. I'm going to set a little screen, and we're going to make this 48 minutes. This is going to be a tough one for you, bud. And that's you're why not have fun. And that's why I think there's a difference between more, maybe more than ever, between guys who put up stats in the regular season who are regular season stars and guys that I just trust in a playoff series. And you know, you, Katie's one of those guys. I would put Chris Paul in. I know you would too. I know we're probably going to get shit for that, but I would put Chris Paul in that category. I think he's a guy that I just I would go to war with and I'd be comfortable with it. And I might not win, but I'd be comfortable with it. Uh you know, obviously you give up LeBron, Steph, Kawhi's out, but I'd put him in that category. And then everybody else, you know, like the Giannis is the world, the MBs, the Westbrooks. Uh Westbrook. I, you, could, you could throw Harden into that category. These are just guys that I know they're going to put up stats in the regular season, but I just, I don't, I'm going to, if they ever win a title as the number one player on their team, I'll tip my cap to them. That's great. But I'm just, I, I don't think I'm ever going to pick them or be comfortable with that. And I think there's a huge gap between guys that I trust and guys that I don't trust, even though there are some big, crazy regular season numbers going on by some of these guys. Yeah, look, I've been on that, that offensive thing now for a little while. And here's the thing. I would agree with you on some of the guys I have more doubts about than that tier one group. Because, like, let's do it. Let's just do it. We were going to do this before the Chris Paul thing. We're going to do it today. But we can be quick about it. If you could have any player for one game to win a playoff game, how many guys are you picking before you take Chris Paul? This is before we found out about the COVID situation, which we're going to get to here in a second. But it would be LeBron. It would be Durant. um, It would be Kawhi. uh, Steph. It's obviously Steph. Um, You know, I'd love to put Anthony Davis in there. But the the injury part, look, he's <laughs> go look at some of the numbers. Look at some of the numbers that he put up last year in the playoffs. All right. And yes, game one against Phoenix when he was just like, hey, what, what's wrong with you? And then he comes back and shows you. So look, Anthony Davis is not in this group. I just think there's a there's a I, little bit more consistency. Go ahead. I think he needs a Chris Paul, though. Like, I think he needs that guy who's like, you know, who's an who's an MFer who is going to say, I need the ball in a big spot because there are times when AD kind of floats in and out of games, doesn't show up. And like, yeah, like he could. He, he's yeah, that's fine. Hell. That's fine. So he, he, I'm not going to push makes it. Me nervous. You know, who's a guy who I would actually throw in this category and I, I might get some crap for this. I would take Lillard. I, I just I, I don't think his team's good enough. So that's why I think they don't win the playoffs as much as they should. That dude is not afraid ever. So I would put Lillard in that category. I have no problem with that. I have no problem with that. So I think that's the group. And that's it. And now. Where are we at? We're okay. So the Chris Paul thing, I was hoping I'd have a little bit more information on it because it seems a little weird. Here's a couple things. Indefinite, the word needs rebranding because as soon as you hear indefinite, it's like, ah. I mean, there's a version of the Utah Clippers thing going seven, which doesn't seem likely now as they go home because it really feels like the Clippers just figured them out. And if Mitchell, who's saying after the game, I can't move, well, he can move a little bit, but mm-hmm. you know he's limited. And that was a weird game too because both teams are absolutely on fire NBA Jam style. And I remember just kind of sitting in the hotel going, okay, but what's this game going to look like once everybody start, starts to miss shots? Like, what's this game? Like, once this ridiculous first half is over where no one's missing, what's the game going to look like? And again, credit to Reggie Jackson, too, for bringing I was, it. 
Yeah. I was gonna say, you're gonna get are you gonna get that kind of production from Man and Jack and Reggie Jackson again? I, I don't know. That's why I don't I don't know. I think it could go seven. I I don't think it's that ridiculous to see the Jazz winning that game. Even I mean, it depends on Mitchell. You're 100 percent right. I heard a story. The Utah Jazz team store like took started like taking down some of the Gobert jerseys after that man dunk. I I can't confirm that, but um, that man dunk, which wasn't even clean, but the fact that it even happened, and that was the decision that he made. Because that's by the way what they're doing too is they're running it so Gobert stuck guarding the guy in the three-point corner and then they would run it to the right side and go bears shading over to help and then they would just throw it in the corner and it didn't necessarily work all the time but like it's just something to look for in game six where when they're small again which is going to be basically the entire game like they have go bear worrying about a guy behind him in the three-point corner to the left side knowing he still has to like stay honest with it but also trying to help whatever drive side it is on the on the other side it sucks it sucks it's a tough spot for go bear being um so, I don't know what's going to happen with Chris Paul. You know, I know people were saying yesterday, hey, he's vaccinated, so we'll just go with that. I don't, I don't know enough about it. Um, but I don't think this just means he's done, done. And if it's the Clippers without Kawhi, you know, can, can he get back in the middle of the series? I don't know. And by the time this podcast comes out, maybe even this commentary could be dated. But here's one thing I would add to the Chris Paul discussion because there was a lot of jokes. And obviously, you know, it's going to happen where LeBron goes to the tequila party and then he's not in protocol because everybody was like, now nah, we're good with it. And I don't want to get into whether or not guys are vaccinated and all that kind of stuff. But then it was like, oh, well, Chris Paul is held to this different standard, which, again, could be two things. That could be true. It also could be the NBA investigated the LeBron thing and actually felt okay about it. Possibility. I know no one ever wants to believe that, like, do you think the least devious thing could have actually happened? But I'd end with this. If there is one player in the NBA that's going to get some preferential treatment when it comes to this stuff. Like, oh, hey, we tested somebody again and he's good to go. He's good to go. We'd agree LeBron's the first player. Chris Paul's the second. <laughs> you want to talk about juice and having power as a player? So it's not like, hey, there's a set of rules for LeBron and then nobody else gets those. If, if we were doing a curve, Chris Paul would be very high up on that list. Okay, our first interview we're going to do with Jared Jack, and I just want to let everybody know we taped this prior to the news of learning that Chris Paul was in protocol. This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9, with available all-wheel drive that sets the pace and seating for up to seven adults. With zero to 60 speed that thrills you one moment and available lounge seats that unwind you the next, visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. As everybody knows, I really like the draft, so I was watching a lot of the G League Ignite stuff, and uh, longtime NBA fans will know this guy, Jared Jack, who joins us, who was on that Ignite team for the 15-game season. And before we get to any of that, Jared, let's kind of start with where you're at. Uh, 37 years old now. Been out of the league a couple of years, had the rough ACL thing. You played really well this year, and you're also kind of there mentoring, but you're also probably trying to figure out if you have any NBA future. So what's going on with you? Um, you know, I'm I'm still trying to decide if I'm a, if I'm gonna give it one more year of playing basketball. Um, I have some other options uh, that I might dive into as far as coaching or maybe uh, elevating to the front office. But you know, time will tell. They they tell me don't don't hang them up until you're fully uh fully done with it and I'm not quite sure if that's where I'm at yet so just being patient not trying to rush my decision very much being selfish with it I think I kind of deserve that after I've dedicated myself to the sport for 
the majority of my life. And, you know, I'll see what, see where it takes me. What does it take for a guy to have your NBA resume? You're a really good player for a long time. Um, what does it take for you to go from waived in 18, kind of before the season was going to get started, and then accept the idea that you're going to come there and mentor these younger players while still trying to keep your dream alive? What, what does it take from a guy like that? Um, well, in my situation, having my career, I think uh, just hard work. I think that's the thing you always have to uh, add to who, whomever you are, no matter how talented you are, no matter where you get drafted, no matter where you start, or, you know, if you don't get drafted. That That's something that's necessary just as a life skill, I, I think. Um, then also learning the craft, uh, getting smarter every day, you know, understanding the nuances and what goes into the to, to being good at the game. Um, th- then you can learn how to manipulate the game and move the game around and kind of move people around at your leisure, especially with my position being a point guard. I think it's very, very uh, vital um, that you do that. And then secondly, you know, where I'm at with it now, man, um, getting to be around these young guys who are now trying to, you know, getting ready to go into the to, to the draft process. And I remember when I was a young kid in, the, in that same situation and I didn't have somebody to kind of hit me to the learning curve. I kind of had to figure it out on my own, kind of had to bump my head a little bit or kind of just navigate the waters and see what worked and what didn't or whatever. And that's where veterans such as myself, um, along with the other veterans that were put in place, that's what we're, we're kind of here for. You know, um, the coach can, you know, coach you, quote unquote, but it's different when you're a guy out there with them and you can actually talk them through the, through the process in, in real time. And I thought uh, all of the guys responded really, really well. And I'm looking forward to see uh, what happens come draft time. Is there a moment with you know your NBA background over ten plus years in the league playing with all these superstars, where you like this sucks. Now, granted, this year was this year was challenging for a bunch of different reasons. But do you have to get over that? Did you have that moment where you were like, "Man, like I can't believe I'm not in the league." Um, you know, you you, you can look at that however you want to look at it, but it's it's four hundred and forty some odd jobs, man. It's it's not that many when you really look at it. Um, from that, I guess, from that magnifying glass a little bit. And for me to be fortunate enough to have one of those jobs for 14 years straight, no, no drop-offs in between. I mean, it's, it's a blessing. It's something that doesn't happen often. And, um, you know, obviously I would love to get another shot. I think I, I still have some basketball left playing in, in, in me. Uh, I think CP is doing a good job of showing everybody that, uh, age isn't always a deterrent. It can, it can, it can be, uh, an assistant to, to, to a, to a degree as you get older in age. I think you make some adjustments to still allow yourself to be, uh, to be, to be effective and, you know, we'll, we'll see what happens. I wanted to ask you about Chris Paul, um, because that you were traded in New Orleans, what, in 2010. And that was always kind of, I've always kind of laughed whenever I've heard like, Oh, you know, Jack and Paul are really close. So that's why the franchise did it because they want to keep him happy. And then he was like, no, nah, I, st- I still want to be true. Like a lot of times you'll see <laughs> trades happen and they'll think like the best friend connection will keep a guy somewhere he wants to go. What was that like from your perspective, meaning you get sent there and you're one of his best friends knowing that he still probably had other plans? Me and CP met probably, I probably was like 12 or 13. And I think he's a year younger than me. Uh, we... I happened to play in a tournament in North Carolina. I played pretty well. And uh, him and his dad came up to me after the game. And they we were talking just whatever, just talking basketball. And I remember when we first played him in college, because we both played in ACC, um, he walked up to me. He was like, man, what's up? 
And I'm looking at him like, I don't know you, but I know of you. What's going on? And he was like, man, you don't even remember, do you? And I'm like, remember what, man? What are you talking about? And he was like, man, you remember that tournament? And I'm like, you were the kid with his dad, bro. Like, so it was kind of like a full, kind of like a 360 little bit. But back to what you were saying, um, getting traded and getting an opportunity to play together uh, in New Orleans was amazing. You know, getting to watch Chris, the way he's grown uh, from our days playing in college to a, a first ballot future Hall of Famer, um, how he elevates every situation he goes to. Um, it's just amazing to watch, man. And he's an even better person. I know some people kind of have things to say about Chris, but it all comes from a genuine, really, really good place. And maybe I have the insight to kind of uh, understand that because everybody's not going to understand your methods. That's just, that's just life. You know what I mean? Um, but, you know, to watch him grow as a leader, as a person, a father, husband, uh, whatever you want to call it, um, you know, it's been great, 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 great to watch. But for him, when he had other plans to go to L.A., I actually was uh, sitting next to him when that whole thing happened. When the whole when the whole trade happened and then... Uh, to the Lakers, the first time? or the Okay, so what to happened? The, to the Lakers, and then when they got rescinded, I'm sitting next to him, mind you, um, I'm, we're at his place in New Orleans and his wife is packing up. They're, they're putting all the tape on the boxes, whatever. And I'm just sitting there watching TV. Of course, this is breaking news all over the place. CP's about to play with Kobe and Powell and the whole thing. So I'm just sitting there kind of watching that, whatever. And he's on the phone and he hung up the phone. He's like, yo, did you hear that? And I'm like, nah. He's like, bro, they just said I can't get traded. <laughs> I said, man, you lying. He very much was at practice the next day. Um, and then, you know, shortly thereafter, he made his way to the Clippers. So I'm glad he got to go into a situation uh, where, where he can still be competitive. Yeah, that was crazy. Um, what did what did you think of that? Like, what were you guys talking about? Did you feel like other owners were like, no, nah, that's not happening? I mean, the league was able to use the unprecedented situation of saying the league owned the team and that it wasn't yeah. enough trade value. But how did you guys feel about it for real? Um, I mean, I don't know. I mean, you, you can kind of feel, feel away personally, like, yo, why are they doing this to me? All these other trades that happen and they're going to hold my trade up. Uh, you, you can kind of feel away about that. Um, selfishly for me, I was like, yo, man, I, I love playing with CP. Uh, CP did one of the best. He had a moment for me that I probably have never really told people before. Um, we were playing actually against the Lakers in the playoffs and big possession. I think we might've been up one or two and uh, we're about 12 seconds left. And uh, coach Monty Williams uh, is drawing up a play and he's trying to figure out drawing up something and CP stopped in the middle of the huddle. Mind you, I'm not in the game. CP stopped in the middle of the huddle. He was like, yo man, I need Jay Jack in the game. And this is in the middle, like I said, very tense moments, fourth quarter. And coach looked at me. He was like, yo, get in the game. And I was like, all right. And CP went into an ISO thing, and he kind of got stuck in the air. And I just was cutting through the basket. I was cutting just maybe I can get a tip in or something. And he got stuck. He threw the ball to me, and I kind of hit this little fall away that kind of iced the game in the playoffs, and we won that game. And I was like, I always – well, I never told him publicly, but I was like, man, you gave me one of my – that was an amazing moment just, you know, for me to you because you didn't have to do that. You could have rocked with whoever else was in the game, but for whatever reason, man, you 
you grabbed me and pulled me in and I was just happy I could come through for you. That, yeah, it's crazy. That's 2011. Um, mm-hmm. And that was, you know, a Lakers team that was still really good. Now, you know, I know how much I love Chris Paul. I, you know, I spend probably too much time talking about it because I just appreciate, you know, I think the nastiness of other people not liking him, a lot of it's based on the competitiveness, you know, some of the shit he does in a game, which I'll admit, even though I'm a huge Chris Paul fan, I'll be like, man, why do you have to just stop and have the big guy run up you? But then again, how come people keep calling it? So, you know, you're going to get away with it. You're going to get away with it. But can you give me like a really educated basketball answer on like what separates him from so many other point guards like what is it about what he does we know he can handle we know he's quick we know he can shoot we know he's but like what do you see how do you guys talk about the game where you know how special he is the thing about chris that that probably separates him from the majority of people like i think we always say he's like ultra talented right as talented as he, as he is, he's just as smart and he's he's probably he's probably more competitive than he is talented, which is kind of like a wild thought. You know what I mean? And I think those uh three ingredients for him, I think that's what makes him who he is. And I think if you're so competitive and you're really, really smart, and then on top of that, you're talented, you work hard. When you get around people that don't reciprocate that, yeah, you might not you might give them a look or you might talk to them in a tone that maybe they don't really appreciate, but it's all for the betterment of, you know, I'm trying to win at the end of it. That's all I'm trying to do. I'm trying to win. And he gets, I think he gets so competitive and so worked up that he gets into his things with the refs at times or other players or whatever. But it is it's all from a, a just a place of I'm trying to win at all costs. And I'm not trying to hurt nobody. I'm not trying to do anything dirty. I know people say that from time to time, but I'm trying to win. Like everything I got. I'm I'm trying to use everything I can to try and win. That's it. I'm actually gonna try I had this for later because I want to get to the G League stuff again here, but because of that great, you know, set of stories there, give me how that compared to like you had Steph in his fourth year at Golden State. It was his first breakout year. It was after the ankle injury. So he'd been in. And that was like the first sign, I thought, of of watching Golden State. And you fit in perfectly with him too, kind of closing games, even though you didn't start. But is there a Steph moment in that season or the thing that you tell your buddies about like, well, this is when I knew. I mean, he was already good, but that was that felt like, okay, this team might actually be set up for something here. Um, if If I had to probably pinpoint a game where it just was out of control. Probably the game in Madison Square Garden when he had 54. And that's when he was just hitting some some shots. I'm like, yo, man, like, what was... And you're, on, you're in the midst of it. You're like, man, what is going on? He's hitting shots that I've never seen people hit in the history of the league. You know what I mean? And now you're, like, looking at him, and I'm like, man, this is a incredible performance uh, by such a young kid coming in. And, and I want to say that night, man, we were shorthanded. I want to say we had like seven people because uh, we got a bunch of guys got suspended because we got into a little uh, kerfuffle, if you will, uh, <laughs> in Indiana. So we very much come in there and, you know, we could have folded and could have got blown out, whatever, chalked it up. But yeah, man, he came in there and put on a hell of a performance, hell of a performance. And that's when I was like, nah, this guy can make some 
he can do some things that the game hasn't seen yet. Can you give me, uh, I'm going to ask this question where I, I know the stuff I've ever heard, but everybody from the outside is usually fairly amazed Mark Jackson hasn't got another coaching gig. I know yeah. some people liked playing for him. I also know some people didn't like playing for him. And I think that makes the rounds. You were there a year and it was still Mark. What was your assessment of him, how the team responded to him and and what, you know, the goods and the good and the, the bad part of, of that, that season and, and why he hasn't been able to get another job in your assessment? I thought foundationally he laid the groundwork for what people know Golden State to be. You know, coming in, us as players, right, playing against Golden State, I'm going to tell you me personally, I used to just look at Golden State as a, a stat game. They're not going to play any defense. They're going to shoot a lot of threes. The score is going to be in the in the high hundreds just because they play so fast. They don't care about defense. They don't, you know, they don't care if they turn the ball over. It's just a very much free-flowing, I'm going to just try to outscore you type of game, right? And when we got there or when Coach Jackson got there, defense was very much at the forefront, having a pride, a sense of pride, a uh, bit of a change in culture, being physical. Um, and, you know, the offense would take care of itself because we had, you know, talented, very ca- talented and capable pe- people. But we're going to use our defense to turn into offense. And then, you know, things like that. So what he was able to put in place, holding people accountable, you know, that that didn't seem like that was something that was uh, a pillar of, of what, what that organization was doing at the time. Um, why he hasn't been able to to get another job, I think some things might have happened that maybe us as players probably weren't privy to. And clearly decisions on behalf of that, um, you know, people have opted not to put him in place. But I think if he was able to get another job, I think he would do another excellent job wherever he would go. You know, it sucks because people should uh, base it off your body of work. And his body of work is comparable to damn near anybody um, other than the fact that he doesn't have a championship. So, you know, not getting another shot, I mean, it sucks. I think everybody that was there um, during his tenure would speak highly of him. Um, I guess we'll just keep our fingers crossed, man, hopefully. And, you know, maybe if I'm a head coach one day, maybe I'll bring him as my assistant or something. Yeah, but then if you get, the ownership is like on the fence about you a couple years in. They'll be like, okay, well, we can have Mark take over because he has head coaching experience. So you don't know if you, you know, you got to get worried about that sometimes. <laughs> no, nah, not really, man. I'm I'm a person, man. Honestly, if it's for me, it's going to be for me. If, if, if it wasn't for me and my time was only meant to be there for very few and they want the next person in line to get him a shot, it is what it is. You know what I'm saying? Like me holding on to it or, or, or feeling a way about that. Like, I had an opportunity to do the gig. And obviously, I didn't do a good enough job or what somebody else may thought was a good enough job. And, man, you move on. That's it. Hopefully, I, and if I was in a situation, hopefully I try to get better at, at, at my weak points. And maybe I get another shot at something. And hopefully I'll do a better job maybe next time. But looking over my shoulder, man, I don't live my life that way. And I think that's actually why this is a good transition and watching you in those D-League games this year with Ignite because I don't know that a guy with your NBA resume would have been 
as willing to adapt to what that team was about. And, you know, we're going to talk Jalen Green and Jonathan Kaminga. We're talking about two, not just lottery picks, potentially top five picks playing on this team. Jalen's leading scorer, Kaminga's second in scoring. The stats are uh, terrific. I mean, Kaminga didn't shoot it all that great, but you could, I could see with your game that you're like, this isn't about me right now. Mm-hmm. And I don't, I commend you because every time I'd watch you in these possessions, I'd be like, man, he is totally bought into what they're trying to do for these kids and what they're trying to do for the G League and Ignite in a much bigger way than these 15 games. And you deserve a lot of credit for it because you're still a really good player. You shot it again. Great. You know what I mean? So like you're, I'm sure you're, as we talked about at the top, like, hey, other guys would not have handled that the same way. They would have gotten pissed. They would have taken more shots and be like, this is about me getting the tape out there to get back in the league. So give me, let's start with Jalen. Give me your Jalen Green scouting report on him as a player and as your teammate. Jalen, um, incredible athlete, um, very, very quick first step. Um, he was the one probably I took under my wing, probably the most, um, a sponge. The very first day I got there, he came to me wanting to watch film, wanting to ask questions very much, uh, wants to be good and, and wants to get gain knowledge from people in place. To, to, to help expedite that process. Um, you know, gets great elevation on his jump shot. Um, I think the thing he probably has, probably will have to work on the most is, you know, getting a little bit stronger. Um, and then just getting used to the bumps of the NBA. You know, you're going to get bumped by bigger physical, more physical, uh, you know, people now, rather than people that maybe you were, had the physical uh, advantage or, uh were comparable to your age. So, you know, I, I think he has a bright, bright, bright future uh, wherever he goes. I think he'll be definitely a, a nice shooting guard piece for whatever team decides to build around him. And, you know, I think he'll be a hell of a pro. Give me uh, your breakdown then of Kaminga. Kaminga, I think he has an opportunity to be a really, really good 3 and D guy in NBA. You know, he has the tools, he has the size, long arms, length, athleticism. Um, I think with just a minor adjustment, man, I think he can shoot the hell out of the ball. Like, his mechanics are really, really good. I think he just has to work on uh, his arc a little bit. He kind of shoots it on a bit of a straight line um, at at this present moment. But he, too, man, he's another guy that's a hell of a straight line driver. If he gets his shoulders past you, man, he can can elevate and uh, get to the rim, or he can get in those what I call Kawhi areas kind of right at the free throw line, the elbows, uh, the dotted line area, man, and do some do some damage and make the defense have to, you know, uh, respect respect his uh, ability to get in there. Yeah, with Kaminga, you know, it's, it's more raw, I think you would agree, right? And yeah. I think the thing that you look at the age and you go, okay, this body type, like we've seen players get drafted really high and you think like, I just wish you were better at basketball and then you, you completely whiff. But I think we've seen more and more players come along recently and develop so that this foundation of the body is there. And like, I don't even think I'm with you. I don't think his shot is broken. The shooting numbers are terrible. He just kept taking the shots. So it was more of a shot. I, I'll ask you this and I already think I know the answer, but it's, it's a shot selection decision problem more than it is that he just flat out can't shoot. Is that something you say to him or is it with you and a guy like Brian Shaw coach of the team where you're thinking, hey, l- let him make the mistakes in the shot selection. We want him comfortable more than we want him thinking there's things that he's not supposed to do out there because, you know, I think it's still a developmental league we're talking about. Um, The, the one thing that, that I always just tried to uh, express to, to all of the young guys was, you, know, you don't have to press. 
I'm going to make sure, and I, I know what this is all about. I've been through this process. I know what I know what everybody wants from it. I know everybody wants to score 25. I know everybody wants to be on top 10. They want to do it all today. They don't want to do it next month. I'm saying, please just put your faith in me that I'm going to put or, or do my best to put everybody in position to uh, be evaluated and highlighted the way you want to be seen and the way I know they want you to be seen as well. So, you know, um, and granted, I was only there. We were only together two weeks before we went to Orlando. So they don't know me all that well. So they could very be like, yeah, okay, man, whatever. You know what I mean? Which I get. Um, but yeah, And they were cool. Was, they both, they both had a great attitude towards you. Oh, everybody. Great. Yeah, all four of those guys, they were, they were young guys very much, uh, always kept their ears turned on, um, being receptive to, to the direction being taught to them. Um, but yeah, that was my whole thing, man. Don't go out there trying to press and trying to, you know, conquer this thing in one day. That's not, that's going to hurt your stock more than that's going to help what you're, what you're trying to do. So that's where I thought I kind of came in and tried to maneuver things, tried to put them in all the places that, you know, I thought they could be successful. What was it like having Brian Shaw there, who it feels like everybody gets along with, but. Uh, Shaw was cool. Players, coach, easygoing guy. Um, I never really had extensive uh, conversations with him before other than, you know, playing against him, obviously seeing him around uh, and having respect for him as a, as a, as a former player. You know, I, I've always been really, really big on just showing love and gratitude for anybody that came before you uh, in, in any type of space. So, you know, I always had a, just a respect level from a distance uh, for him the whole time, but getting to, getting to play for him and getting to work with him. Um, very, very smart guy. Um, you know, definitely holds guys accountable, but very enjoyable to play for. How big is the talent gap between the G League showcase that fans would be watching and even the top college basketball teams in the tournament? See, that's that's kind of tough to say. Um, and I, I say it from a standpoint of because of COVID this year, I know the guys weren't. I'll give you a little bit of insight, right? So because of COVID and when I got to the team, which was in January, like January 15th, and we left for the bubble on the 31st. Prior to that, those young, those four young guys, they only had 10 people together three times. Wow. So for those young kids to go into a situation where they're playing professional basketball against some guys who might be seven, eight years their senior and to perform the way they did and to make the playoffs and to start off 4-0, they did incredible. Like, I used to grab them and be like, I don't really understand if y'all know how amazing what you guys are doing. Like, all you guys, are y'all were in high school six months ago. Because of this pandemic situation, you guys didn't have a lot of repetitions to even get you guys used to what you're about to play in a couple weeks. And then you still came out here, and in the midst of it, you guys came out here, played amazing basketball, competitive basketball, winning basketball. And I thought gave all of you guys an opportunity to, to do yourself some good when this draft process comes around. So, you know, if that doesn't speak to the, the work that they put in and understanding and not looking like a uh, fish out of water, so to speak, you know what I mean? I, I think they should be super commended, complimented. I think a lot of that goes to B. Shaw as well. Um, you know, keeping the group together. 
um, in, in all aspects. And, you know, I was super proud of them. Yeah. And you're also, I believe you're talking to Isaiah Todd, right? And then uh, Nick's, uh, yeah. the, the other two guys. And Nick's was out of Alaska um, mm-hmm. and then Vegas. And I'll tell you, when I watch it, Todd shows up a lot. Like when you're watching for you and you're watching for Kaminga and you're watching for Green, um, Todd's presence alone, like, you know, he's young, but he, he carries himself like a big guy that's been big for a while. And yeah. I was impressed with his physical style of play. And he wasn't trying to pretend he was something he wasn't. And you're also realizing all the other shots are going to those other guys. So um, I thought both of those guys show a lot of flashes. And I, I think it's, you know, it's the very beginning. In a way, you guys are kind of pioneers this year. It's it's the beginning of what's going to become the norm for a handful. Of, it's not going to ruin college basketball or anything like that. But you're just going to see more guys going this path. And I... When I would jump back and forth from draft stuff and even watching a Gonzaga or a Baylor game, and as, as good as those teams were, I, I still think the talent level, I think there's a pretty significant gap. At least, again, that's just me from the outside watching it, but I just thought there was more talent, more size, and there'd be guys coming off the bench. You're like, oh, that dude's still around? <laughs> you know what right. I mean? So um, I, I think you deserve a lot of credit for it this year. I, you know, you just put, you just had the right approach to it. And I, I really, you know, I've, I've said it a couple times already, but I don't know as many guys would have handled it the way you handled it. So hopefully those young guys learned something from you and we appreciate your time. Oh, no problem. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Coming up after the break, we got Luke Wilson, who is one of my favorites going all the way back to Bottle Rocket. And that's what I want to do a ton of time on. So I enjoyed the time that we did get with him. Uh, if you haven't seen Bottle Rocket, it's one of my all-time favorites. I talk about it all the time. And so we're going to talk about his new movie coming out and also that classic from the 90s. This episode is brought to you by Crown Royal. This NBA season, Crown Royal is celebrating the loyal fans that show up for every tip-off. I love every tip-off. I love every one of them. And people ask me, hey, are you tipping off tonight? Because they know that's code for, are the games on? And I'll say, yeah, come on over. Bring your kids. I don't care about the audio feed. You can walk in front of the television. Because this time of year, the second half of the NBA, it's about family. And that's one of my favorite things about my life. Crown Royal believes if you live generously, life will treat you royally. Visit crownroyal.com to get ready for tip-off. Please drink responsibly. 12 Mighty Orphans comes out June 11th. Uh, Luke Wilson and a really strong cast uh, is, is part of this group. And we know it's a true story. The Jim Dent book that came out you know, a while back. And uh, Luke joins us now. So, look, this is... An incredible true story. Um, I know there's probably backstory for your understanding of it and the book and all that, but like, where were you in kind of the timeline of learning about it and learning about the main character you play here, Rusty Russell, who coaches this group of orphans and leads them to quite a run as a high school football team in Texas? Yeah, well, the book was a bestseller, but somehow, like, I missed it. Like, I've always really enjoy sports books and sports biographies, but somehow I'd I'd missed it. So when I signed on to do the movie, I had quite a few friends who were like, yeah, I read the book, loved it. And then older people, you know, friends of my parents had read the book as well. So, um, yeah, I, it was fun for me to then read. I read the script first and then read Jim Dent's book. And yeah, as I began to learn more about it, it was really seemed unbelievable. And also was one of those things where you know, if it had been fictional, you'd have thought it seemed kind of over the top, like, wow, really did kind of capture the nation and and FDR was really into the team. And um, people came from, you know, all over the country to try and go to these games. And, you know, they, they'd have 20,000 people at a game, like overflowing stadiums. And 
it, the trains would be packed. And uh, so, yeah, it was a pretty incredible story to learn about, especially having missed the, the book somehow. Yeah, I don't know. I'm I'm with you. I, <laughs> I was researching. I was like, wait, what happened? And, you know, I knew about Junction Boys. I knew about the author and and I knew all about this stuff. And then you kind of find out and you're, you're right. I mean, the element of why this coach that you play decides to leave a, a pretty prestigious gig and go, you know, I'm going to go ahead and coach this this group of orphans that don't even have shoes and have a football. And then you kind of I don't know how much of the movie you want to give away, but the twist, like when you find out about the coach's own background and there's motivation behind it. I mean, it's this is this is made to be a movie. So it makes sense. Yeah, I mean, I think it's fine to say that, yeah, you learn that Rusty Russell, my character, was an orphan himself. And yeah, like you were saying, um, I mean, it just does seem like a different era with a different breed of person that was kind of so kind of quiet and dignified and kind of selfless to where Rusty Russell, he'd gone to World War, he was an orphan, he'd gone to World War One. he'd lost his brother there, Rusty had, you know, what today we'd consider to be PTSD, and then, you know, had gone to become a coach and a teacher at this kind of prestigious um, school district outside of Dallas in Temple, Texas, with a good football team, and then he left it all behind and took a real chance with his wife, Juanita, and their baby to take over this this orphanage. And I mean, that's what I would kind of remind myself, you know, while working on the movie is to think like, you know, you know, this Rusty Russell didn't know this was a feel good story and that it has kind of a happy ending. Like he was taking over, you know, a dilapidated school with, you know, damaged kids. And um, yeah, there was no, you know, happy ending on the horizon when he, when he got into this. When I was looking at some of the scenes and, you know, this can be something like whenever I think of like The Revenant, okay, when you saw The Revenant in the theater, you were cold. You felt like you were outside, the lighting, the way you're just cold the whole time. I guess in just the short clips I've seen of this, it feels like that Texas heat. It's the it feels like the attention to detail of what it would be like to be at an orphanage and coaching kids that had no clue with no resources. It feels like that part of this is absolutely nailed. Did you feel that during those scenes? Because it feels very, like sports can get lost very quickly on a screen. And I think this stays very true to probably what that experience was like. Yeah, I definitely felt that, Ryan. And I was just kind of reading about how uh, Robert Town, the screenwriter, had written Chinatown because he'd written an art, he'd read an article about how all these, this was in the early 70s, he'd read an article about how all these buildings from the 1930s were still around in Los Angeles if you just went to look for them. And he thought, gosh, you could do a detective story, mod, you know, and shoot it today and have it, you know, be the 30s using these locations. And this is kind of that same idea where the, we weren't able to use the original orphanage just because they'd kind of changed it and modernized it and they'd kind of built stuff around it. But we found this um, orphanage right outside Fort Worth, kind of on this windswept hill, and it's called the Pythian Home, and they take care of uh, the children of families that are experiencing different hardships. They're not orphans, but they've been... They've been um, they're, while the parents or parent is experiencing some some kind of hardship, they they're 
kids can spend time at the Pythian home. And that's what we used as the orphanage. And yeah, when you'd be out there on just uh, on a hot, you know, October afternoon in the dust, in the dirt, shooting these scenes and, you know, there's cattle in the background and, you know, pump jacks in the background, you really kind of felt like you were back in that era. And, um, you know, it's the same thing. Like I've kind of had it happen on, you know, the few Westerns I've gotten the chance to do when you get the chance to be out in the country and you're on a horse and you can't see anything like it's, it's kind of an exciting feeling. And I, I, uh, I, I think that people will kind of respond to just visually how, how well it works in terms of capturing that kind of dust bowl depression era look. This cast is loaded. Uh, you get Robert Duvall, Martin Sheen. I don't know clearly how many days of shooting there was. I always like to ask guys this question, and it might be a stupid one, but you've been doing this a long time, right? You're very successful. And then, you know, it's it's Robert Duvall. It's Martin Sheen. Is there a moment where you're like, okay, whatever scene, like I really want to impress this guy, or are you secure enough where you're like, ah, whatever, I'll just do my thing? I don't, I, I imagine everybody's different with that. It's not cool to say, Hey, I was maybe a little like, I wanted to do something a little extra, but what was that like for you? Yeah. I mean, I, I've definitely had that happen where, you know, and, and that's to me, that's been probably the greatest thing for me about my career is like, I've gotten to work with these guys that I grew up loving that my dad loved, like, Nick Nolte or Gene Hackman or Jeff Bridges and James Kahn, like just all these great guys. And I've gotten to be in scenes with them where I definitely have had that thing where I've been doing a scene and I, you know, they say like the most important thing an actor can do is listen. Like to me, it's just like, I'm out on the tundra. I'm not hearing anything. I'm just like looking at this, like, I'm like, wow, this is Nick Nolte. This is unbelievable. Like what a face, man. And then it's like, wow, he's stopped talking. Does that mean it's my line now? Like not, not the kind yeah. But anyhow, I've had that, that happen a lot. And definitely like, I wasn't even working the day that Robert Duvall worked and he was just there for one day. Martin Sheen's, you know, he's one of the leads in the movie. So he was there all the time. But the day that Robert Duvall worked, it was just incredible to go see him. And, and again, he's a guy where Tender Mercies is, you know, in one of my favorite movies of all time. So to get to see someone like that in person on a set is is um yeah it just it, it never gets old um and those guys really they you re, you realize they they are who they are for a reason it's the way they look it's the way they sound it's their ideas just great ideas and uh and also just you know hard working guys you know i want to ask you cuz when you say hey this is one of the great things in my career um i would i would say it's bottle rocket it's one of my five favorite movies. It'll never be jumped in that group. Uh, I remember seeing it in college and it wasn't, you know, it's, it's hard to describe why I like it so much. I just, I love it. I love it. And obviously I love all the Wes Anderson stuff that you've done with him. I know it was a short in 1994, making a new movie in 96. You would have to have known about movies. Cause I remember being in college, like, have you heard about this movie? Bottle Rock? You're like, get to check this out. You guys are in your you know, I think you're mid twenties at that point. What was that like? Can you take us back to that timeline of like this weird little black and white shorts going to be a movie. And now like I'm famous in a couple of years. Yeah. I mean, I'll try and 
I'll try and tell you is in a nutshell, but it is incredible that it ever got made because, um, you know, we had it. Owen and Wes had a whole script written. We couldn't get the money to do that. And this guy, Kit Carson, said, you know, there's this place, Sundance, and they show shorts. So if you guys can make a self-contained short, you know, maybe 10 minutes, 15 minutes, do that. And then we'll try and submit it to Sundance. So we did that got accepted to Sundance. And then this woman named Barbara Boyle, a producer saw it and liked it. And she took it to a woman she knew named Barbara Boyle, who at the time was James L. Brooks's right-hand man. James L. Brooks is the great writer, director of, you know, Terms of Endearment and Broadcast News and As Good As It Gets and produces The Simpsons. So then he came on board and he worked with Owen and Wes on the script. And at the same time, he was working with us, he was also doing this movie, All Do Anything, which was this kind of notorious movie with Nick Nolte, where it was going to be a musical with all these musical numbers. And then they scrapped all the music and just had to be a regular movie. So all this kind of turmoil was going on with him while he was helping us. And it was that thing of like, we, we learned like, okay, we're, you guys are close to getting the green light on this. So it was all about like, okay, we might get the green light. When's that going to happen? And then, um, then we did get the green light to make the movie. And I was like, okay, we're going to get to make this. This is great. And then Columbia came back and said, okay, just a, a, a little change is we will make the movie, but we just don't want to make it with these guys acting in it. <laughs> and, and, and I was always like, and your brother had co-wrote it with Wes right. too. And and my my reaction at the time was seems very reasonable. Like you know, Wes directs it, we can work on it. You know, do locations, do whatever. We'll get them on the next one. And everyone's like, Luke, what are you talking about? It's like we we come all this way, and you're gonna like say that that that's fine. And then so we did get the chance to make the movie, but. I, that's why I always find it funny about, you know, people loving Bottle Rocket. And I mean, it makes me think about that Bob Dylan line about people telling him, like, you know, they love blood on the tracks and him saying, like, I don't understand how people can get joy out of something that caused so much pain. And I'll think about for me on Bottle Rocket. And I don't know about Owen and Wes, but I know they felt some of this that we we were aware that the studio didn't like the dailies. They didn't like the work that we were sending back every day, the different scenes and takes. And so there was kind of this feeling of melancholy, like as we learn more about being on set and you got to love the guys on the crew and the cameraman and the sound guys and the locations guys and the grips and the electric guys, where it was like, this is great. This is kind of what we've been looking for to, to work like, as a team doing something creative, but then just having the feeling like this is it, we're never going to get to do this again. So to me, it was an overriding feeling of kind of melancholy. And then the movie came out and, you know, it came and went in two weeks where I do remember Kenneth Turan in the LA times gave it a really good review but it came and went. And oh, and the other thing is, you know, we had all this kind of stuff happening, like where the bottle rocket short had gotten accepted to Sundance, but they didn't accept the feature, which we none of us could believe. You know, they didn't they didn't want the feature. And and 
And we thought like, gosh, we kind of developed it with Sundance. Now they don't want the finished product. So we were getting all this kind of, uh, you know, kind of getting negative feedback. But and then gradually kind of things started to filter back. Like I can remember like, you know, Sean Penn got in touch with Owen and Wes. And we heard that Billy Bob Thornton loved the movie and and then, you know, different people would start talking about the movie. And this, of course, was before streaming. So it really was kind of a word of mouth thing that you would then run into people like yourself that would would have really enjoyed it, which always, you know, I still find surprising. <laughs> yeah, I just didn't know. And I'll let you go after this and, and we'll give you the tag because I know you have to run. But no, this is it. I... I stopped and paused the scene where Dignan gets you out of the psych ward to read the notebook excerpts. Right. And it's so fucking brilliant because right. it's so stupid. And it's like right. the next, you know, five years. And then when it says the next 25 years and the goals are when possible, meet people from foreign countries. <laughs> <laughs> See, <that's, laughs> so did Wes write those in the notebook? Did, I think did Owen, Owen and do it? Wes both both wrote those, but that that's a good example of that was a, a reshoot that we'd done, kind of I think at James L. Brooks's encouragement, where at him that's where he was such a so such a kind of genius with movies and not not using the word light lightly, but a guy that can really track story, but he'd had us go back and do that beginning. But then through him having us do that, then Owen and Wes came up with that five-year plan and 25-year plan. And yeah, I think there is a certain, if you have a certain kind of humor that that really <laughs> hits you. And I know, it's just get, get degrees, get honorary degrees. And it's just, it's <laughs> for anyone that's ever seen the movie, it's just hard to explain that it's these delusional characters that are all incredible incredibly likable even though they're doing stuff that makes them unlikable and it's just this simple simple story and it's i've always loved the idea of the guys trying to to be something they're never going to be and they don't know it and that's kind of what it always felt like and you guys just nailed it it's perfect it's one of my favorite movies ever it just always will be yeah i think and we'd always kind of loved those movies growing up like kind of you know aimless dreamers and then that's kind of what what we tried to make a movie about 12 mighty orphans the great luke wilson uh really appreciate this man thank you brian thanks a ton and i will uh tell bob mona talk to you sounds good i'll do the same this episode is brought to you by royal caribbean What are you going to do for your next vacation? Beach, island hopping, hiking, a little culture? Choose Royal Caribbean and you can go on all the vacations at once. That's the point. You want to go to Greece? How about they get you there? Everywhere else. I've looked at the Alaska packages. Alaska Inside Package, Alaska Experience Cruise, Vancouver Round Trip, One Way Out of Seattle. They have it all. They make it easier for you with adventure at every stop. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Visit royalcaribbean.com to learn more. You want details? Fine. I drive a Ferrari, 355 Cabriolet. What's up? I have a ridiculous house in the South Fork. I have every toy you can possibly imagine. And best of all, kids, I am liquid. So, now you know what's possible. Let me tell you what's required. I want to apologize in advance because of the taping window today. We have no Kyle for life advice. And after we found out that he has uh, experience at 
North Face jacket stealing parties and that he wore a woman's large around campus. And once he found out, he didn't care because he was like, I've been rocking it for months. So it's too late to go back now. So we know that Kyle is the gift that keeps on giving <laughs> for life advice, but uh, we don't have him. So I know, Saruti, you're not even going to bother, but you just, people are going to be mad at you. So no, I, I can't. I, people are going to be mad. I can't fill his shoes. Kyle's great. It is what it is. But sorry, here I am. It is what it is. There you go. Um, here we go. You mentioned the vibe when uh, book guy walks into a bar. Wondering if that applies to crossword puzzle guy. Every Thursday, I head up uh, to a brewery. He doesn't want me to say which one it is. Um, before his candle pin bowling league, which he said he definitely wanted me to share that part. Wow. So he said he usually goes for a run. Hey, candle pin, New England, man. You don't understand it. I know you're from Connecticut, but I don't think you understand candle pin. No, I don't. No. Rhode Island, South Shore. Uh, North Shore. Usually go for a run beforehand and then finish with a 45-minute having a beer and doing the crossword. It's generally empty when I get there and a bit busy towards the tail end of my stay, usually anywhere inside the 5 to 6.30 window. He wants to know, am I in the clear? I do it on my phone, so I, I suppose I just look like a uh, text guy anyway. Um, hate being text guy, though, so usually the phone is flat for any passerbys to see. Uh, 58150. Respect. No, dude, you're, you're fine. This isn't even... This is such an easy one that we decided to do it. Uh, don't worry about it. You're having a... Nice little micro brew in a place. Decompress. Love doing crossword puzzles. Good for you. And you're good. I was talking about like, it's getting a little late and you're sitting at the bar reading a book because in Mayor of Easttown, Guy Pierce is reading a book, sipping a whiskey, and it's a little late to be doing that. So when you're doing that, you're kind of like, I want you to see that I'm doing it. And hopefully someone will come up and talk to me. Um, and like I said, my history as a bartender was that guy that would hang out a little bit later by himself, read a book. There's another guy that used to do art and then try to like hand the art to people. Um, but he was actually a really nice guy. I think he had a girlfriend too. So, um, but it still was a little, you know, it was a little weird for some other people. But yeah, there was a couple solo book guys that would roll in and then they would stay a little bit later. And I don't know, those guys never seem to be that great of a time. So you are not that guy. You're just doing crosswords and you know, you're there 45 minutes and you're there really early too. So, and by the way, if you went there at 10 and had a beer by yourself and looked at your phone, I don't think you would stand out anyway. I think it'd be all right. So that was a simple one. We had a lot of pushback to my apparently insensitive uh, advice and perhaps just flat out misunderstanding on the proposal calendar. Um, a lot of people chimed in and said, nope, Priscilla, you're wrong here. Um, so we'll read one. All caps, do not propose that quickly before your buddy's wedding. I got engaged in October 2020, looking to get married in October 21. Everything is great. I have a younger brother. I'm 25. He's 23. We've been with our respective girlfriends over five years. That's two young dudes who've been with uh, their ladies for a long time. You guys you guys know exactly what you want and you go for it. Love that about you too. Needless to say, being the first to be engaged put the pressure on my brother to pop the question because he's 23. Yikes. Where are you guys? Where are you guys from? Norway <laughs> in the 1600s? Um, I don't even know what the average marriage age in Norway is. So I'm just, I'm just thinking. Like I started thinking medieval times, which would be prior to the date that I mentioned. But I think everybody understands where I was going with that. All right. Anyway, shout out to Norway. Only problem is he wanted to do it two weeks before my wedding, 
My fiance found out, was pissed and threw a fit. Plans were changed, but it's left a bad taste in her mouth. Oh, it's left, it's left, a, <laughs> left a bad taste in their mouth. All right, we got it. This stuff doesn't matter to guys. I couldn't give, a, you know, but it does to the bride unless you want to piss both of them off. Just wait. It's not hurting you at all. Saruti is right. Just an aside before we get to Saruti's part about this. I love the the bride is really upset about it. I'm not talking about your bride in general here, but just let's do a generalization of, of the people that are like posting posi vibes only posts and like hats, just positive vibes. It's like, no, no, no. Actually, I just mean my fucking vibes. Um, I don't care about your, I'm going to let, I'm going to let the world think I care about everybody's vibes, but really it's just about my vibes. So if you were a posi vibes only person, you would only want positive vibes to the people around you. But when they start to impact the full throttle, like 100 out of 100 level of your vibes and it gets knocked down to like an 85, then it isn't really about posi vibes only. It's only about your posi vibes. Yeah, I've actually never thought about that before, but you're 100 percent right. Uh, <laughs> anyone who who has any positive vibes only memorabilia is probably incredibly selfish. Like they are the <laughs> ones that don't want doesn't want their day fucked up. <laughs> that's wild to me yeah we, i mean it's kind of like that time when i blame millennials for a segment and that guy from awful announcing like didn't get the joke and it was one of the worst dms ever i was like hey dude i really don't think you got that and he was like um i listened to it a second time and you blame millennials for everything and i was like yeah i was like that's that's not really what i was doing but um it was like a tongue-in-cheek thing i think you were there weren't you producing that day sorry probably you yeah were. Yeah. But honestly, that that aged well because now people, people blame millennials for everything. Like Gen Z people hate millennials, like the baby boomers <laughs> hate millennials. So we're just kind of in this weird crosshair situation where nobody likes us anymore. So uh, actually, it's probably a good take by you now. I guess my thing with it was that it was just kind of like, I want all of us to do better. And then it's like a millennial will slit someone else's throat for a meme. It's like, wait. That doesn't seem to add up. And again, it was a generalization in, in the guy who was clearly a millennial wrote the piece and he was very upset about it. So I was like, all right, whatever, man. Um, I was like, we'll just agree to, to disagree on this one. So that was about it. But yeah, the posi vibes thing is is great because the more I thought about it when I when I saw this email from Kyle, I was just like, yeah, oh, I love, I love everybody. Wait, you were going to be, um, you were going to have this moment of happiness, but it was going to infringe upon my happiness level. Yeah, I don't want you actually to be happy. Can you delay your happy thing? Can your vibes be delayed for like a month? Is that cool? Awesome. All right. So yeah, Saruti was right. So go ahead. I don't think it's that ridiculous. I mean, here's the thing, especially about guys at a wedding. The wedding's not about you. It just isn't. I, I accepted yeah. that going into my wedding. Like I, It was about my parents. It was about Maddie. Uh, it was about her parents more than it was about me. I was just happy to be there, had a good time, tried not to mess anything up, and I was happy about it. But I didn't think about stuff like that. And Maddie, who is my wife, is the most low key, chill person alive. And even she wouldn't have. If someone like proposed the week leading up to our wedding that was coming to our wedding, I don't even think she would be cool with that, which tells you that it's just the wrong move. It just is. Period. Yeah. You know, as you say that out loud, first of all, your wife is extremely cool. So I can't imagine it was that big of a deal anyway. And it wasn't like you were like, I have to let her be the star of the show, even though that's the right no. thing to do. You're right. Okay. You're right. Be the star of the show. But it's not like she's seeking that out in ways that we could certainly, um, and I'm not even talking about anybody specifically, but you just know there are certain brides that it's going to be like, nah, this is like all about, like I had certain guys that weren't invited to some of them because she was just like, well, he may do this or that could happen here or whatever. Oh, and then like wow. some guys were like left out going, wait, what, what's going on? Um, 
I mean, if that happened, none of my friends would have been invited to my wedding. I mean, <laughs> period. Like what we had a we had a dude puking on two buses, two separate buses on the way home. Like we knew what the deal was going to be going in and it got weird. And uh, if my wife put her put the foot down like that, we none of my friends would have been invited in the first place. So that sucks if, if you have a wife like that or a significant other like that. But I also realized as you were explaining it, you're kind of like the groom of life. Like your day to day, you're not there. You never make it about yourself. You are just happy that everybody else is doing their thing. And you just, it's almost like you could be a little bit more selfish because the way you said, like, I knew that day wasn't about me. I feel like you approach a lot of stuff that way. And it's probably why everybody likes you so much because you're just like, yeah, whatever. I'm here. What's going on? Yeah, no, I, I, I could be more selfish. That's hundred percent true, but I don't think, uh, just my, my vibe. It's, it's that, that's my positive vibe, dude. It's just me not caring about stuff. I don't, I let stuff go. I don't really mind. Like if I like that, if, yeah. If, if somebody really wants to have the attention be on them for something, like gladly take it. I don't really care about that. And I find it weird when people do care about it. Okay. This one's heavy. And I, I know what I want to say. I'm not sure. Uh, we're just going to go for it. So, um, and it sucks sort of, or maybe it doesn't. So here we go. Um, don't use my name. Six, one and a half. Nice. One ninety five. Huge fan of the pod, been listening, SVP. Uh, your life advice segments going all the way back to Texas Jake. Hey, can Texas Jake send a follow-up email? Because I feel like we never really did a full follow-through with him. Remember, he was he was trying to be, he wanted to work as like an athletic director. Texas Jake, yeah. hit, hit us a follow-up email. People really want to know what's going on. All right. I hope, And then our guy says, I hope he's doing well. We all do. We really liked him. <laughs> he was a nice guy, yeah. He was really nice. Suri, so you like talked to him on the phone a few times, right? Uh, we emailed back and forth for a bit. Yeah. Uh, That's Texas Jake. Yeah. He's not a phone call. He wasn't going to keep calling you all the time. But, you know, he followed up and we were interested in his deal. But that was like three years ago. So, it's, I mean, he's he might even be the AD at some big school right now. Who knows? Yeah. Who knows? Probably not. Probably not a huge school, but maybe on his way. A directional school. All this time listening, I never considered writing until now. Here's my situation. Mid-30s, married, young kids. I've worked in the financial world my whole career. Decided to make a career move a couple years ago after earning my potential plateaued. After my earning potential plateaued at my old firm, I took a pay cut from making just under 200K a year to a new role making 100K base with a chance for much more upside. A bonus potential of three to five times my base once my business unit is humming. All right. Flash forward two years and I'm still grinding on a $100,000 base as the runway to get the new operation going has been long. COVID, marketing conditions, you name it. It's been a longer grind than expected, but things are picking up and I'm hitting my targets this year. I should be feeling great, right? All right, so that was kind of cool because the way that previous paragraph ended, it felt a little bit like an infomercial. Um, but I'm going to defer. I'm just always kind of deferring to trust here, right? In that uh, it sounds like this guy's, despite some bumps in the road, feeling good about where it's going. So maybe he's going to make all that money, right? But here's where it gets tricky. My wife is a real estate agent. She's been busier than ever in our upper, upper middle class suburb with folks fleeing the city and moving to the burbs the past 18 months. She's great at what she does. and I've been proud of her as her career took off. Not to mention after my cut in income, she's been able to pick up the slack and keep us comfortable. She'd never made more money than I during our relationship until this past year. Uh, now when we need it most, she comes through. I should be feeling great, right? I feel like we're, this is not going to be feeling great soon. Here's the kicker. Throughout the stress of little kids and tight budgets, we typically would only have sex once or twice a month. I'm not great on these topics because I just don't understand the the marriage thing. And when I'll hear my buddies talk about the sex life thing, I just, it kind of blows my mind. Um, even though I know it's exactly what it is. So I'm not, I, I, I know there's some limitations to my, I, I'm not great on this topic, uh, the sex lives of married people other than I, I've heard a lot about 
what happens once you get married. So anyway, um, so we're talking uh, once or twice a month. It is what it is. And I just dealt with it. Recently, we experienced an uptick, much like the leads on this new business. Twice a week, the last six weeks, way more than our average stats. I should be feeling great, right? <laughs> this is like, I wonder if this guy says this with his buddies as he tells stories out loud. Now I'm starting to wonder if it's fake. All right. But anyway, after a long night out during some extremely drunken sex, she said something I can't get out of my head. My husband wouldn't like this. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. What? Yeah. She said my husband wouldn't like this. So our emailer continues. What the fuck? Is my wife cheating on me? Is the uptick in sex in exchange for some guilt she's carrying? Or is this all in my head? Some kind of inferiority complex as I financially defer to her while I build my new career? Was it just some poorly worded, drunken, dirty talk? How do I bring this up without blowing up our managing, uh, marriage and accusing her of cheating because of something she probably doesn't remember saying? As my new career takes off, uh, will I realize this was nothing or will it always be in the back of my mind if I don't comfort her? I hope this isn't too heavy for the sports pod. Uh, he also said he doesn't want to ever get divorced because of the kids. All right. Um, you know, if we cover all angles on this, there are going to be some you like and some you don't, right? Let's start with the best version of it. You already said you guys were out late. I mean, it could have just been something stupid that she said. I will admit one time in college, um, let's just say another name was said out loud. and By you it, or someone else? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I'm not like super comfortable because I don't want to <laughs> end up going down that road of like, you know, like, man, this sixth or fourth quarter. All right, here's what I was like <laughs> in bed. So, you know what I mean? I just, I don't know. I don't know that I ever really want to cross over to that. Maybe okay. I will one right. day, but. Imagination, uh, there you go. Yeah. Uh, I think we know the answer to that, though. Yes. Like, you know, who cares? Yes. She said another one of my buddy's names. And so I was like, you know, and then I, you know, because I was also a, a college kid you know, hothead all the time. And I would just be like, I just was like, what? And then, you know, went back to probably my apartment or something. And then, you know, the next day she was like, I was hammered and I was trying to remember how like we got home and we'd all gotten in a cab together. And she's like, that's why I, that happened. And it all checked out and it didn't even make any sense that it would have been this other guy anyway. Um, so that very well could have been what it was. Your wife was was drunk and said something that didn't make any sense because she was drunk. Now, combining that with the uptick in sex, I think you would hear from some people say, you know, was there something that's happened recently where you guys are just kind of in that mode a little bit more? You know, there are ebbs and flows to this. So um, that could be part of it. Um, but this is the part that you may not want to hear is I think there are other people that will tell you that a change in behavior sexually is the first sign that something is actually happening. And, um, that's not what you want to hear here. So I don't want to give you all of this advice and be like, all right, hire a private investigator because there's like a different way of doing it. You could just say, Hey, can I talk to you about something that happened the other night? And if you know your wife well enough, you can read her. Um, if you've never had any suspicion of it ever before and you're wrong and you bring it up, like you said, that might go even worse than, than any other part of it, but it's really going to be up to you. Like how long are you going to let this beat you up in your head? Because at some point you're going to have to address it either with her 
again, I'm not saying like, you know, all of a sudden you're like, you know, you should start doing, get a babysitter, maybe staking her out three or four nights a week. Cause then you're, you know, you could end up being a complete psycho because your wife said something silly while she was drunk and you guys were together. So I, if it's bothering you this much, um, there's going to be a moment where you're finally going to have to address it, or maybe it just kind of goes away because there's never been any signs, you know, there's never been anything, but there's a lot of things you have to notice. Like, does she turn her phone upside down? Does she have a phone lock now that she never had before? Um, you know, is she going out with the girls more often? Uh, is she buying new clothes that you don't see her wearing? Um, is there a guy named Doug that's calling the house a lot, you know? Anyway, the last one, I'm kind of kidding. So I'm not trying to like freak you out and plan all these things in your head because you don't know. You don't know the answer, but it'd be naive to be like, no, you're totally fine. But it also is, I don't know if it's likely or not because I don't know you guys, but it could very simply be something silly that was said um, in the moment after a night of drinking, which is, you know, not exactly an unusual thing to happen. So uh, good luck with all that. I think the insecurity about the pay and her now making more than you is probably putting this as a bigger idea in your head that it could potentially be a thing. So I wouldn't worry about that part of it. But what I what I would worry about, like if you know that your wife doesn't say things like that, like, hey, my husband wouldn't like this. Um, like you know your wife. And if you know that that's a weird thing, even if she's drunk or not, uh well sober would be probably a bigger deal. Yeah. That to <laughs> me is that that I don't want to be like a bummer here, but that to me is kind of like kind of weird. Um and like if just being honest, like the, the real estate thing, like, you know, that's an odd job kind of thing. So it's really hard to track that person down. Right. Cause they could say, yeah, I'm going on a showing. Right. And you'd just be like, all right, you know, I, how do you know? Um, good call on the real estate thing. Yeah. So I don't want to alarm you, but I think it's worth checking into. And if it's going to really bother you, I think it's worth confronting her about it and just having a grown up conversation because you know, that's, it's going to make it, it's, if you're going to hold it against her and she actually isn't cheating on you, then it's almost going to be, it's not going to be worse, but it's going to, it's going to be terrible for your relationship too. So you kind of have to get to the bottom of it. Well, yeah, I mean, it probably made this guy feel worse. So, um, but yeah, there's no way to answer this. I mean, I can, it would be completely irresponsible. Like, no, nah, dude, you're probably fine. Don't worry about it. Like, you're good. But there's also a chance you're totally fine. And, um, you know, maybe if there's never any other moment in the next however many months where you have any kind of like, there's nothing ever, zero flags, and you're maybe even looking a little bit more here or there, then maybe you're fine and you don't have to bring it up. But if you're starting to notice things, you know, there's two ways of going about it. You can you start getting really weird and paying a lot of attention, um, but it's your life too. So, you know, I, I don't know. I, it's kind of like, how far can we go with the advice on this thing? I don't want to start talking about like an invasion of privacy here. So uh, that one's, that one's, but you know, like as we're talking this out, Surdy, he already knows the answers to a lot of the stuff that we're talking about because of her. Like we, yeah. we're talking about two people we don't know. So at this point, I'll probably just kind of stop it. But yeah, if we're talking six months from now and you've noticed a couple other things and you're driving yourself crazy, like you can't just live like that quietly yep. in silence and keep I it mean, all inside. You need, you need to, for you, you need to figure out and get to the bottom of it, even if it's the answer you don't want to hear. Sounds good. Um, we'll leave it at that. We'll leave it at that. I'm not going to, I think probably some people would ask Saruti for more on the married side of thing, but I, I don't want to put my man stuff out on the street either. So <laughs> no, I mean, this, the, uh, the sex thing is a little, is, is an, I don't want to, I don't want to freak this guy out, freak everybody out, but the sex thing is a little bit of a red flag too. Like that's, that's odd. That just doesn't, I, I don't know like what every marriage is like. And just cause I'm married doesn't mean I'm an expert on every marriage, which I think is what a lot what? of people think just like when they have, you know, some people have kids or an expert on everyone's kid. Uh, but I, <laughs> I, that is a bit of a red flag if it's all of a sudden this uptick because that would make me kind of feel weird too. I don't know. Just saying. All right. So Rudy, so Rudy making, 
making husbands out there feel better one podcast at a time. <laughs> there you go. Thanks to Saruti and Kyle Crichton. And I hope everybody enjoyed the interviews on this one as well. Bill and I will be back on Sunday night uh, as we will we will maybe have the finals decided as far as the matchups. Um, I think they would be actually by then, depending on the schedule. Yep. I got to look at it. I, I'm, I'm a day to day. I wake up. Who's playing? Okay, good. That's what I'm doing. That's how my day works out. Yeah, you're about the grind. You don't look ahead, dude. I don't. I really am one game at a time, unless there's two. All right. We'll talk to you Sunday. This episode is brought to you by Lululemon. Guys, if you're ready for a new pair of pants, try one of Lululemon's ABC pants. They're made to make you look and feel good. And there's lots of different styles to choose from. My favorite, because I walk around LA every day, I like the joggers. I'm not jogging, I'm just walking fast. But if you're working out, I would try them out. And if you want something a little sleek, maybe business-like, maybe try the ABC Slim Fit Trouser. But I am a joggers guy. I just... Once COVID happened, I was just like, I'm, I want to wear jogging pants and joggers and all kinds of soft pants as much as I possibly can, especially when I'm working out. Ultra comfortable and versatile. ABC pants are really in a league of their own. Buy a pair right now at lululemon.com. This episode is brought to you by Empower. You got money questions like, can I retire early? What are my best savings options? Can I afford to pay for my kid's education? Luckily, Empower has all the answers. With Empower's real-time dashboard and real live conversations, you get clarity on your real-life financial goals. So join 18 million Americans and Empower What's Next. Start today at Empower.com. Tap the banner or visit this episode's page to learn more. Sponsored by Empower, not an endorsement or a statement of satisfaction by a client.